You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 86, The Evacuation of Boston. Last week, the Continental Army took Dorchester Heights. The British could not retake the heights by force, and possession of the heights put the entire Boston Army and Navy at risk. Now, months before Dorchester even happened, British General William Howe had already planned to evacuate Boston. Secretary of State George Germain had even sent communications authorizing the evacuation but Howe felt that a winter evacuation would be difficult. He had planned to move his army down to New York and make New York City the base of operations in the spring. London was sending large numbers of reinforcements in a few months, and Howe was mostly awaiting their arrival. General John Burgoyne was already beginning his deployment to Canada, where he would reassert control there. The plan was that Burgoyne would move down the Hudson as General Howe moved up the Hudson. With this, the two armies would cut off New England and isolate the most troublesome part of the continent. New Englanders would suffer under a British blockade, while regulars pacified and reasserted control over the Middle and Southern colonies, where they thought patriot fervor was not quite as universal. It seemed like a good plan. The problem was Washington and the Continental Army had pushed up Howe's timeline. Howe's reinforcements from London were not there yet. He did not want to take his relatively small force to New York. Part of the Continental Army, along with New York militia, was already building defenses around New York. The last thing Howe wanted was to land his relatively small force and face an attack under possibly worse circumstances than the one he just left in Boston. Howe wanted to invade with overwhelming force so that there was no doubt he could overcome any resistance, and that could not happen for a few more months. In the harbor, Admiral Shuldum made clear that he was not going to leave his ships in the harbor under rebel guns. Without the Navy, Howe could not stay. He would lose his already difficult access to food and supplies. So the regulars had to leave and leave now. Until he was ready to take New York, Howe decided to move everyone up to Halifax in Nova Scotia, Canada. Halifax remained under royal control and would not be a combat zone. General Howe could wait there until he could coordinate his much larger invasion of New York with the reinforcements coming from Britain. By March 7, 1776, two days after the Continentals occupied Dorchester Heights, Howe made the final decision to evacuate to Halifax. Putting that plan into effect was a major task in itself. First, there were over 8,000 soldiers in Boston, some sources say nearly 9,000, about a quarter of whom were sick. The numbers may actually have been closer to 11,000, but I think that is including the estimated 2,400 camp followers, that is, wives and children of soldiers, who could not be left behind. Now, in giving these numbers, there's always some degree of guessing. Some sources I've read say the camp follower numbers are smaller, but that is only because records exist for only about half the regiments being evacuated. In addition to all these, there were at least 1,100 Tory colonists who could not be left behind to face Patriot vengeance. 
So roughly in total, Howe had to board an estimated 12,000 people, along with their belongings, aboard ship under enemy fire, all the time worried that the Patriots might attack while the regulars were in the process of evacuating. The British had about 125 ships at their disposal, enough to carry all the people, though there was an uncomfortable amount of crowding aboard ships. And there certainly was not enough room for all the equipment, supplies, and personal effects of the colonists trying to move with the army. Even worse, the Navy had been losing sailors to disease and desertion all winter. They did not have enough sailors to man all the ships they had at their disposal. They actually ended up having to destroy several ships that they could not take with them. In an attempt to make the evacuation easier, Howe sent out a notice to the Patriots on March 9th. The notice declared that the British had decided to evacuate Boston. If the rebels fired on them while evacuating, they would burn the city. If left alone, they would leave the city intact and allow the Continentals to take control. Howe did not seek a direct agreement with General Washington. The problem was that Howe refused to address Washington as general or any other title conferred on him by the Continental Congress. Doing so would have legitimized the authority of Congress, something he could not do. And Washington refused to accept any communication from the British, which failed to address him as general. So, instead of trying to deal with all this communications nonsense again, Howe had several Boston selectmen sign a note stating Howe's position and had the note carried under a flag of truce out to the Patriots. Washington did not respond formally, but apparently agreed to the deal and did not fire on the regulars as they packed their ships for departure. He did not want to waste ammunition nor see the destruction of Boston. If the regulars would pack up and go, that was good enough for Washington. This is not to say, though, that Washington simply sat around and waited for the British to leave. Washington had already begun deploying soldiers under the command of General Charles Lee to New York, thinking that would be where the regulars would be headed. Lee had been hard at work setting up defenses in and around New York City. Now Washington prepared to deploy more of his army to New York to greet any British landing there. At the same time, Washington could not be sure that Howe's planned evacuation was not a trick. He could be stalling for time as he waited for expected reinforcements to arrive. Or he could load up the ships, carry his army a few miles up or down the coast, land them, and march back toward Boston to attack the Continentals from the rear. So Washington continued work on his defenses. Nook Hill was a smaller hill on Dorchester Heights, closer to the harbor and well within range of British artillery at Boston Neck. On March 9th, the Continental Army began construction of a fort on Nook Hill. They began work after nightfall in hopes of erecting a fortification by morning. The workers on Nook Hill could not see enough to get the work done and lit a fire to help them see what they were doing. The regulars immediately spotted the fire on Nook Hill they were not ready to march out of Boston to attack, but they did unleash an artillery barrage against Nook Hill. One report indicates that the Patriots later collected over 700 cannonballs fired at them that day. For all the firing, the regulars only killed five Continentals on Nook Hill. That, however, was enough to discourage the construction of the fort and the Continentals evacuated. 
This repeated itself over the next few days as Continentals attempted building more fortifications in plain view of the regulars. The British would fire artillery and the Continentals would back away. Finally, on the night of March 16th, the Continentals successfully established a fortification on Nook Hill during the night. Washington wanted the fortification in case the regulars really were not leaving, he could be in a better position to attack the town. By that time, though, the British were so close to leaving that they did not put up much resistance. They fired from a few cannons that they still had in place, old ones that they planned to spike on their way out of town. Under much reduced fire, the Continentals held their occupation of the fort on Nook Hill and mounted cannons aimed directly at Boston. While General Howe had agreed not to burn Boston, he also did not want to leave anything in the city that could be used by the enemy to further their rebellion. At first, Howe ordered that citizens turn over all woolens and linens. These were apparently in short supply in the Continental Army, but also would probably be needed when the regulars arrived in Halifax. Later, he extended the order to salt, sugar, flour, furniture, and any remaining weapons. Soldiers looted houses looking for such goods and taking whatever else of value they happened to find. Howe ordered that looters be shot on sight, but that didn't happen. No one in the army was in much mood to fight about protecting colonist property. One of the more notable looters was a man named Crean Brush, an Irish-born Tory. Brush had moved to New York back in 1762 and had settled in the Green Mountains. Since he held New York claims to land, that put him in direct conflict with Ethan Allen and the Green Mountain Boys, who had been fighting New York's control of the region. Brush had been on the committee that declared Allen an outlaw to be shot on sight. After the fighting started, Brush went to Boston to get authority to raise a Tory regiment tasked with hunting down and killing Allen and the Green Mountain Boys. Instead, General Gage put him to work in Boston, finding houses for his soldiers, which often meant kicking locals out of their homes. Brush later worked for General Howe trying to find supplies for the army by taking control of warehouses and confiscating whatever the army wanted. As you might guess, this did not make him many friends. To top it off, Howe put Brush in charge of searching all the houses and confiscating everything the army wanted during the last days of occupation. Brush loaded up one of the ships leaving with the British fleet with anything of value that he could carry. Unfortunately for Brush, his ship, the Elizabeth, was the one ship in the fleet captured by a Patriot privateer and returned to Patriot-controlled Boston. There, the Patriots tried him, but amazingly could not convict him. Still, they kept him in jail because... You know, regardless of any trial, the guy was a Tory and a looter. After 19 months, near the end of 1777, his wife came to visit him. Using her clothes, he snuck out of prison dressed as a woman and fled to British-controlled New York. He could not get any help from the army getting compensated for all the property he lost, and he died the next year, allegedly from suicide. At the risk of getting really off-topic here, I should also mention that Brush's humiliation did not end with his death. Years later, Ethan Allen, the man he had spent years trying to kill, married his stepdaughter. 
Ironically, Ethan Allen took up the family claims from New York on Brush's confiscated properties, putting him against the New Hampshire claims that he had fought for all of his life. Anyway, back to the evacuation. On March 16th, Howe ordered all Boston civilians not leaving with the fleet to remain confined to their homes to ensure the soldiers would not have any problems and to keep the streets free for the military. Despite their efforts, the British left behind a great many things. They spiked dozens of cannons and threw tons of food and other supplies into the harbor. As I said, they even had to scuttle a few ships because they did not have enough sailors to man them. Even so, they'd still left tons of supplies for the Continentals to capture when they re-entered the city, including stables with at least 110 horses. Later, Washington estimated that the Continentals captured supplies worth at least 30,000 pounds sterling. For the next week, the British Army made every effort to strip everything of value from the city, either destroying it or loading it aboard ship. Finally, on the morning of March 17th, they had packed everything they could, made their final boarding, and sailed out of Boston Harbor for the last time. One of the very last tasks in Boston fell to Captain Jesse Adair, who you may recall was the Marine lieutenant who ordered the regulars to confront the militia on Lexington Green a year earlier, rather than continue to just march past them. Hal tasked Adair with covering Boston Neck with crow's feet. These were little spikes that would pierce a soldier's foot unless they walked fairly slowly to avoid them. The point was to slow down any entry into Boston as the last ships were leaving. Adair started at the British entrenchments and worked his way toward the Continental Lines, spreading them as close as he could until he came under enemy fire. Now, brain trust that he was, he then realized that he had to run back over the ground he had just covered with crow's feet in order to escape the enemy. He was nearly captured, but he did manage to pick his way back across the neck and get back into Boston safely. General Howe was one of the last officers to board a ship and depart Boston. He knew many in London would not understand his fleeing the city without a fight. He had been writing letters for months saying there was no way the Continentals would ever attack Boston without being slaughtered. Now he had to flee to save his army but there really was no other option. And to this day, Boston celebrates March 17th as Evacuation Day. As the fleet sailed away, the Continental Army moved into the city. Washington gave the honor of retaking the city to Generals Ward and Putnam, both New Englanders who had been at the siege since it began 11 months earlier when the militia chased the regulars from Lexington and Concord back into Boston. Ward and Putnam took a select force of 1,000 soldiers into the city. All of the soldiers had been selected because they already survived smallpox and were therefore immune from the disease that was still ravaging the city. As the troops advanced, they halted upon seeing that there were still regulars manning some of the fortifications at Boston Neck and on Bunker Hill. On closer examination, though, It turned out that the defenders were simply scarecrows wearing old uniforms. The Continentals began recovering anything the British had left behind or attempted to destroy. And as I said, they were pretty surprised about how much they could recover, including guns, ammunition, and other supplies. Also, almost as soon as they entered the town, 
they began building fortifications to defend the harbor should the British decide to return. Washington himself entered the city a few days later to take command. While the British had looted most houses, Washington was pleased to report to John Hancock that his mansion was surprisingly intact. General Clinton had lived in Hancock's home during much of the occupation and made an effort to protect the personal items of his unwilling host. Washington also took note of the defenses that the regulars had built through the city and realized that if he had attacked by water as planned, his men would have run into almost impregnable defenses. Although the British fleet had left Boston, most of the fleet remained just off coast waiting for favorable winds. Admiral Sholdham sent messenger ships to London to inform the Ministry of the Evacuation and to other colonies to warn British ships headed for Boston to head for Halifax instead. All of those leaving were crammed into crowded quarters. Benjamin Hollowell, a Tory member of the Board of Customs, left with the fleet. He reported sharing a cabin with 36 other people, all crammed together and sleeping on the floor. Roughly 100 of the Tories fleeing Boston with the fleet were government officials. Most of them would settle in Canada, England, or somewhere in the Caribbean. The other 1,000 or so were private citizens, many without much of anything in the way of assets. They had to make new lives for themselves, having left the only home they ever knew. Most of them would find themselves on lists permanently barred from ever returning to Massachusetts on pain of death. For now, they found themselves stuck on crowded ships going nowhere. On March 20th, the final garrison at Castle William on Castle Island blew up the walls of the fort and burned all the wooden structures on the island, leaving nothing for the enemy. They also boarded ships and joined the fleet in open waters. Everyone sat miserably in crowded ships, listening to Boston Patriots celebrate their victory. And let's face it, who wants to listen to Boston Patriots celebrate a victory? It would be another week before favorable winds allowed the fleet to set sail for Halifax on March 27th. Until the fleet actually left, Washington had to keep his forces on alert in case the enemy returned. He had to hold off on sending most of his forces to New York, where he thought the fleet might be headed, but he also had to again be prepared for a surprise attack back on Boston. Once the fleet definitely set sail for Halifax, Washington began deploying almost all of the Continental Army to New York, leaving only a small garrison in Boston. Washington himself left to catch up with his army in New York on April 4th. Among those left behind in Boston were General Artemis Ward and Colonel Richard Gridley. General Ward, as you will recall, is second in command of the Continental Army and had been commander of the Massachusetts Provincial Army before Washington arrived. Colonel Gridley had been the chief of artillery for a time and was still chief engineer. Both men were old and had health issues and were not likely to remain a part of the Continental Army. Ward submitted his resignation to Washington before the Army moved south. Washington forwarded the resignation to Congress, but they rejected it. Instead, Ward remained in Boston as commander of the Eastern Army, which consisted of only a few hundred Continentals. The fighting had left New England, and there just wasn't much to do there. Ward finally resigned the following year and did go into retirement. 
Gridley, as you may recall, had already given over command of the artillery to Henry Knox. Following the evacuation of Boston, Gridley also passed over command of the Engineering Corps to Rufus Putnam, who, as you may recall, did such fine work on Dorchester Heights. Gridley remained in Massachusetts, where he used his forge to manufacture locally made howitzers and mortars for the Continental Army. The British evacuation was a huge win for the Continental Army and for the officers leading it. The Continental Congress praised Washington for his success in the Siege of Boston, and it ordered a gold medal struck in his honor. Next week, Washington moves his army to New York. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. So this week's episode saw the British pull out of Boston for good. At the time, both sides probably expected fighting would return there someday, but it never did. Except for some parts of Rhode Island and fighting along the New York border, New England's role as an active theater war was pretty much over after the evacuation. And the evacuation itself went pretty smoothly. The Continentals were happy to let the regulars leave without too much harassment. At the same time, the British did not seem bent on taking vengeance on the city, where they had lived under siege for nearly a year. As they left, Washington had to focus, of course, on where they would go. Washington and many others thought they would head straight for New York City. That was the expected destination, although the Continentals really had to be prepared for anything. General Howe, though, was so conservative that he did not want to go there until he had his overwhelming force assembled. Moving to Halifax for a few months gave his army time to drill and get some fresh food again. The soldiers could be in top fighting conditions after a few months, and of course there would be plenty more reinforcements by then. Washington was already in the process of repairing defenses in New York City, But, as we will see in a few upcoming episodes, New York would be impossible to hold without a navy that could challenge the British. And that simply wasn't going to happen. 
When most people think about the Revolution, they usually think about the fighting around Boston. And yet the fighting around New York involved far more soldiers, had far more battles, and lasted for far more years. New York is really where the fighting becomes a full-scale war. And that's why 1776 is such a critical year. Now, last week I recommended Thomas Fleming's book on 1776, but there's another one that covers many of the same topics and is far better known. And that's my book recommendation today. It's probably a familiar one to many of you. It's called 1776 by David McCullough. So, to emphasize how popular this book is, I want to relate an incident from a few months ago. Uh, I'm a member of the American Revolution Roundtable in South Jersey. At the beginning of the meetings, we have used book raffles. Uh, Basically, somebody donates a book to the cause, we all put some money in a can, they draw a name out, and somebody wins a free book. A few months back, the raffle book was McCullough's 1776. The problem was that each person who won said they already had the book and didn't really want another copy. We pretty much went through the entire group before we found someone who would take it. Now, this, of course, speaks to the immense popularity of this book. After all, it was a bestseller when it first published in 2005. It even won a Pulitzer. So this is probably one of the best-selling books of all time about the Revolution, certainly in the top ten. The author, David McCullough, is not a professional historian or an academic. He's a full-time writer. Some historians argue that the book is unoriginal or even has a few minor inaccuracies, and perhaps they have some points, but I think it mostly sounds like jealousy of the book's commercial success. The popularity of McCullough's books have made him a giant in the history world, and I think deservedly so. All of his major works are about historical events or people in history. Another, perhaps even more popular book, is his biography of John Adams. McCullough is a great storyteller. His books have helped bring history to the masses. I very much enjoyed this book when I read it over a decade ago. Even if it did not really cover much that I hadn't read about before, McCullough's writing style really helps the story to come alive in my mind. If nothing else, I think every historian should read it just so they're aware of what more casual readers know about the Revolution. The book itself is about 400 pages, and as I said, it covers many of the same topics and time period that last week's book recommendation by Fleming also covered. Even so, there are enough differences that it's well worth reading both books. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast.